In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witnessed. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. But everybody can see that moment where I just saw. They're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Guys, welcome back to the Anson's Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. And today, well... We have a lot of voices on the podcast today. That's true. We finally brought the ones that are inside Blaine's head to the outside. Mm, there would be more languages and foreign accents if we did that. So much more information than we already have. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it would be very entertaining, though. Three horizontal slashes, two vertical slashes. It would be like a radio theater. That's a cuneiform joke for you nerds. No. Today, we asked... The men around the outpost, sort of uh, the Wild at Heart men's team, to go back and to reflect on their 20s and specifically to speak to what they wish they had known all the way through that decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, you're not really actually, we didn't ask everybody. We asked only people over the age of 40. Oh, that's true. Because there's a handful of yeah, us Yeah, I didn't here. get asked. Yeah, and... it's sort of embarrassing. But then now you know why. Um, those of us who are still in the thick of things, we wanted to take this moment here as we're getting towards the end of this chapter of the Anson's podcast to invite the guys in to reflect and offer. Um, and we want to have them feel slightly different enough because there's a lot of the content over the course of this podcast that feels like, yes. If you just listen to all 200 plus episodes, you'll know essentially what these guys want to say. But we're we're in the middle of it and they've got a little bit of healthy distance. And so it's sometimes helpful to hear somebody else's story, hear their context and hear what they wish they had focused on and known because maybe that will apply to you more than a different story. So I think you guys are going to like it. And it's just uh, nice to hear these voices again and nice to hear what they each man would want to bring. Bart, thank you so much for coming in. It's good to see you in this yeah, space again. Yeah, great to be here, Sam. Thank you. The prompt that I kicked you, Bart, was we're going to have several different voices looking back on what the 20s were like. Maybe what uh, you wish you had been focusing on and understood. I feel like I'm still missing the forest for the trees most days. I assume by this point, you maybe have seen the forest. <laughs> I, I hope. <laughs> At least the forest in the rearview mirror. So you Sam, just had your 70th, yeah. right? Right, yeah. Just just a couple, three weeks ago. Um, turned 70. But um, your question really was intriguing. That decade defined so much of my life in both darkness and in light of, of God. To kind of kick that off, probably uh, I was 19 and I was I was about two months from being 20 to turn into that decade was the time that uh, I lost my father in um, 
you know, there was a lot of things going on in his life that I didn't know about. And um, he was severely traumatized by the war. And back then, they just didn't talk about it. This was World War II, and those those guys just didn't talk much about it. And uh, so they internalized everything. And But secretly, he was just drinking himself to death, and, and it culminated— um, in my bedroom where he fell dead. And, but the night before I, he had, he and I had this big shouting match and, and so forth. And so, um, when I came home and the next day and he's dead on my bedroom floor, um, that set off, um, a whole lot in me as a young man, shame, guilt, anger, and those things I carried for 15 years that there was a real specific moment where my mom came back to me and, and when I was about 35 and, and she said, hey, I've got, I've got to get off of my chest what happened that day. And I was what she was carrying and I was carrying. And then we were able to release a lot of that. But during that time, that shame, that guilt, and a month later, I was riding my my new road bike that I bought up in Denver and lived down in Panhandle of Texas. And I was riding my bike through town. And that's when five guys in a muscle car, you know, uh, got flipped me off and in that anger and that kind of triggered response, I went over and called that guy out and the five guys got out and just beat me unconscious. Holy cow. And so that, that was the beginning of that decade in terms of trauma, tragedy, all of that. Bart, when you name shame, anger, guilt, I remember we were, we were touching base beforehand on this, in this conversation and you at the time didn't have words for that, right? Like you're about to go live your decade of your twenties and, and not really recognize that those additives are in the fuel or perhaps right. becoming the fuel. Right. And that named something for me that I feel like, again, I resonated with of, of how many of my decisions in my 20s had shame as a motivator that I wasn't aware of. Yes. Whether I was responding against it or I was reacting because of it. Right. Making choices away from things or towards some things. Like it just began to kind of color stuff and, and I couldn't see it at the time. Yeah. And the cake that ended up being baked at the end of that decade, as you say, had all of those things going in them, even though there was a lot of spiritual redemption, I'd come to Christ, I don't know, 26, 27, I think is when I came to Christ in Southern California. But kind of going back to the, to the stories, that's a time that I had a girlfriend and she got pregnant and had an abortion. And that set off a lot more shame in me that was buried uh, for a long, long time. Mm. But then in that decade, I uh, was out running in Houston, Texas, and that's when I saw Tana and mm -hmm. uh, out running one day and, and uh, met her. And that romance that, um, that sparked that day was probably the happiest time of my life. And, uh, and Tana and I have been married for going on 42 years now. And um, so, but all of that happened in the decade, you know, in terms of success of work and so forth. I mean, I, I gave a guy that I thought I wanted to be like, he was very successful in 
the building business as a as a home builder in Southern California. And he wanted to go to Houston and start a, a company, and I didn't really much want to go, but he he just says, Bart, if 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 you go there, you'll achieve everything financially you want. He basically said you'll become a millionaire in a couple three years. Well, as an unbelieving, chasing the wind kind of guy, fueled by a lot of anger, a lot of drivenness, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, that seemed like the best thing to do is I, I want to be like this guy. So I go to go to Houston and gave this guy my soul mm. for a year. And um, and then I remember on Christmas Eve um, in 1979, he comes into town from Southern California and fires me. What? He fired me. <laughs> he fired me. On Christmas Eve. <laughs> on Christmas Eve. And, and so at that time, my validation was my work. And to have that stripped away put me in a state of almost being suicidal. Mm. But that was the beginning of the door going from darkness to light because God stripped that away in order to expose me. And uh, within three months, I had um, found Christ back in Southern California. What transpired from there is Tana and I were engaged at the time in Houston. And so I said, Tana, let's get the hell out of here. Let's go back to California. And she's like, let's go. You know, and so we loaded up her Cadillac and, and moved to California and um, got back out here and went to work for another home builder. And the guy that fired me three months after that happened, he showed up on my doorstep with a bottle of scotch and knocked on the door and said, um, I need to talk to you. I, I made a bad mistake. And so brought him in and, and uh, he tried to pour me some scotch and I said, I, I don't really want to drink, but you, you're welcome to drink. And, and he apologized and says, I'm sorry, I made a terrible mistake. And uh, I said, no, no, you didn't. You did me a great favor and I thank you for it. And I opened the door and showed him to the door. And so best decision I ever made because I had, I had gone from darkness to light because I'd come to Christ in that three months since he had fired me and I had no animosity towards him. I had forgiveness, but I didn't trust him, didn't really much like him, but when that darkness came knocking at the door again, best decision I ever made was send it packing. Sheesh. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Alan, welcome to the Incense Podcast. I know you've heard rumors about this thing. I've heard about it. I've never listened to one. That's concerning. <laughs> I've produced them, but I haven't listened. <laughs> That's, so. That can be true. Uh, that explains why the edits are what they are. <laughs> Alan, because you've been sitting in the booth, you've heard us ask the other older men on the team to reflect on their 20s, what they wish they had known, what they would tell themselves, what worked. Right. And so in response to a prompt of, if you had to write something on the bathroom mirror to tell your 20-year-old self, what would it be? What came up for you? 
Yeah, my 20s were a mess internally, externally, super successful, uh, highly driven guy, and everything was working in a career as far as advancement and promotion and accolades. And so it looked good, but it was a mess internally because I really, looking back at my 20s, I discovered, wow, I can step into situations and and kind of dominate and control and make things happen and get the desired result from a business perspective. And of course, bosses love that. And I became kind of the go-to guy, the hard client, the impossible situation. Uh, I would just step in and do everything I could, and it usually worked. And it and it oftentimes was like a bull in a china shop. And there was relational damage. Um, there was, you know, a lot of stress and striving because, man, my validation isn't making it happen, and I can't not make it happen, whether it's a phone call with uh, a tele-rep for the phone company or the cable company or – the big client we're trying to win at an ad agency. And ultimately, um, looking back at that, it was a very empty way to live. What I would tell myself, you know, now looking back is I was living like an orphan and it was a very lonely, uh, empty way because your victory just led to the next higher hurdle. And that higher hurdle, you barely somehow clawed your way over and then the stakes were raised. And so it was living like an orphan, meaning it was all up to me. Um, God, I believed in God. I, you know, I was a Christian, but uh, there was no interactive life together with God. And um, man, that, that was all of my 20s mm. and into my early 30s. And it, uh, it took just, it made my heart go numb and it really took a, a good boss who wasn't really a good friend. I mean, we just knew each other at work, but a, a good boss who cared enough to sit me down and say, man, Alan, you are really doing well and nobody on your team likes you. They all think you're an ass and they stay with you just because you helped them get the bonus at the end of the year, you're on a, you're on a, you're leading a winning team, but nobody really likes you, um, or wants to be around you. Um, so that was kind of my moment in my early thirties of going, I, something's not working and I can't, keep this up did he have more to say other than the feedback of hey good work sport and uh you're kind of an asshole yeah was there a charge to like it well it wasn't like you're about to get fired moment he saw i think who i could become and there he was probably in his late 50s early 60s i was in my late 20s and i think he just was like dude do you know Mm. do you have eyes to see what's going on because you're hitting the the goals for our division. You're getting promoted, and you've got 18 people who all have one verdict on you behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? 
And honestly, I was so driven that I didn't know. Mm. Like I didn't, I, I didn't know how to take care of my heart. So I wasn't watching the hearts of anybody on the team. I was just coming in, giving orders. And if I had to stay late, you get to stay late too. And if it, this takes my weekend, it's going to take your weekend too. And we're going to make it happen. And that was all of my life, guys. It was, uh, at the time, I wasn't married, but I was dating Kelly. And that drivenness, of course, was playing into the relationship. So every disagreement, I, I felt like, was an argument to win. You know, not not something to work through together. I didn't know how to take care of her heart. Um, so, yeah, looking back, I mean, I needed a rescue and he didn't understand really sonship, but he understood what you're doing, you know, is is a disaster in the making. And I realized then if I died, you know, like at this point in my life, nobody would really come to my funeral. Like nobody would I, – I, mm. I would have been a complete failure in what mattered most while I was really successful at work and at getting things done. And so I, if I could go back, I would, you know, what I did discover, but not until my early forties was how to be a son of God and doing more and efficiency and productivity and making it happen. I just saw, it's not bad, but man, when that becomes the thing, you are an empty, hollow person that is not going to leave a legacy that matters. Woof. I happen to know from other podcasts a little bit. I see that playing out in a context that's ad agencies publishing the Wild West days of Christian fiction. And I also know that, you know, presumably after your 20s, you're still standing in front of airplanes and <laughs> backing out of Sunday school for couples while they're all praying and Right. Uh, just wonderful A plus Allen stories. The highlight reel. <laughs> Lane's of my chain. highlight reel. Yes. Oof. I should do this for all of this dad. <laughs> like, you know what you know what stories I love about you? <laughs> all the things you thought you overcame, let's relive <laughs> no, right now. No. 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 But I'm curious what started to make the difference for you? What started to allow you to whenever it did happen, to change out of I am a hard charger mode into someone who kind of really cares about people and gives them a lot of your presence and attention. and Yeah. it For me, in the early 40s, uh, it was honestly the message of Wild at Heart, and I didn't work here then. I knew uh, John through the publishing world. That same company published his books and and I started reading them and going to the events, and and I had never understood anything about the heart, nothing about the heart, had no concept of uh, conversational intimacy with God, and so it rocked my world, and and it really was the first time I started knowing God as Father, like that. I knew the Scripture before. I taught Sunday school to big classes, but didn't know what that meant in terms of wait, what does it mean to live as a son? And so, Blaine, that was the start of kind of everything. And the wild thing is I still feel like I've got 
uh, an immense strength to make things happen for good. But where before, now looking back, I feel like I was a six-year-old with a powerful chainsaw that was just flying everywhere and I couldn't control it. But it did a lot of damage and it created a lot of attention and it cleared the path sometimes. But now I feel like I am more of a trained uh, warrior for God with a sword that can do good, but that is based on love and and some humility. And, and so when I feel that old me trying to come out and just make something happen, whether it's with my wife or children or work or you know, some situation where you feel like you're at the car dealership and it's not going right, or you're, you know, a person comes in to fix something in your home and you don't feel like it was done fairly or right. Like now, how to wield that with strength, but with God and in love. And most of the time, pretty successful results, but man, a whole different, my identity's not tied to it. There's not striving. There's not rage. It's it's more of a, I want this to work for good and I will fight for good, but not in a way that I'm embarrassed when I wake up the next morning or that I lose my ability to do this with God in a way that feels right and and ha- and has some kind of fathering to it, not just this young boy with a chainsaw. Yeah, it's such a privilege to have the opportunity to sit with you men and to think back of now 15 years ago when I really intentionally began asking the questions out of my pain and out of exclamation marks turned question marks through the pressures of life and the feeling of being behind. I turned to older men and I began trying to recover an ancient path. And at that time, there was a mentor, Jim, who spoke these words that really shaped me and have, have been with me ever since. He said, do it all slower. Talk slower. Chew slower. Walk slower. Make love to your wife slower. Do it all slower. And guys, in this world, in the spirit of the age, among other things, there is this pernicious up and to the right. We live in a world of more and more, faster and faster. And our attention and our affections are being constantly divided and diffused. But there's a pace to God in his kingdom. There's a rhythm to God in his kingdom. And when we are living out of alignment, out of sync, it is very difficult to hear the voice of our Father, to walk with Him, and to participate with what He is doing. Think of the words in the book of Acts that are spoken uh, from God of the life of King David, where God says, David is a man whose heart beats to my heart. He's a man who will do what I tell him to do. That's in Acts chapter 13, the message translation. He's a man whose heart beats to my heart, a man who will do what I tell him. Friends, that's what I want. I want my heart to beat with 
God's heart. I want to be the kind of man out of a deep maturity in God that I respond to what God asks. I respond quickly. I respond deeply to the invitation of God in his kingdom. And I want to have ears to hear and eyes to see. So often we are baited to just speed everything up and to move so quick that we, we live life beyond the speed of soul. And there isn't room for the water to saturate us. It just runs off like a spring runoff in Colorado where the snow melts and the rivers just get engulfed and they overflow their banks and it just rips through desert country. And then it's still again. And then it's quiet again. And then it's barren again. And so friends, my invitation to you at this stage of your life in this season, what would it look like? to do it all slower, to walk slower, to chew slower, to talk slower, to make love slower, to drive slower, to do it all a little bit slower. And in slowing down, may you tune in to sense the movement of God, to hear the voice of your father saying, well done, son, I see you. I celebrate you. You're in good hands, and we'll finish this together. Alex, looking back on your 20s, mm -hmm. what do you wish you had known then, or what advice would you go if you could, like, teleport and you're speaking to Alex, who's just started Focus on the Family? I assume you were in your 20s. Uh-huh. And you'd be like, okay, <laughs> okay. This is what I now have the distance to see. Here's what I would choose to focus on, or here's a, a piece to offer some relief, or here's what I would have written on my bathroom mirror. Any of those directions uh -huh. are welcome. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so as as I was thinking about that question, I was reminded of something that I discovered in my late thirties. Oh, it was early 40s that, man, I wish I would have gotten a hold of in my 20s. And that actually came through a quote from a man that I admire and and I've, I've read much of what he's written. And it's Brendan Manning. Um, and it was out of his book, Abba's Child. Mm -hmm. And in the book, he had this quote and it just stopped me in my tracks. Mel and I were actually on a little anniversary getaway into the mountains and we were listening to the book and and as we're driving along, this this quote came out and, and undid me. Um, and the quote is, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. And who knows if I would have had ears to hear that mm. in my early 20s. But I think a lot of my search in my early 20s was, was for validation, was for to, to hear someone and to hear God say, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And so I did a lot of a lot of people pleasing, which came out of a place of, I think, fear of man. 
and just fear that was kind of brought on by, um, for me, a, a, a life of, I just didn't, I didn't want to be a problem for anybody. Mm. And this quote, when it, when it really sunk in deep into my heart and that question began to, to be more deeply answered of, you're okay. You are loved. You're fully loved. And there is absolutely nothing you have to do to earn that. That's just a plain concrete fact mm. that you're loved. Your identity is your God's beloved. And when that feels settled in my soul, it provides this assurance that I don't, I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Mm. And I don't have to be anything other than who I am. And that's enough. And so in my 20s, if I could have got a hold of that, oh man, that would have been a game changer. Yeah, it's huge. We've had guys share pieces. Fill us in for the listeners. What were the pieces in your 20s that did happen? Like what's some of the context that those words would have been dropped into? You got married, you had kids, yeah. you worked for one of the largest Christian organizations. <laughs> like, I, uh -huh. I'm assuming all that happened in your 20s. Yeah, it all happened in my 20s. Uh, Mel and I got married when we were 20. Wow. Um, so I was a month away from turning 21. So apple cider um, at the wedding, baby. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, grape juice, champagne. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so married very, very young. And and a lot of that was search for that question, right? Am I am I worthy of love? Am I worthy of validation? And and I took it straight to Mel and straight into the marriage. And and we we had a rough, you know, initial few years of marriage because we were both trying to answer that question, right? And we were looking to each other and we were young and and on top of that, yes, uh, we we had two years of college left after we got married. So we finished college through God's providence um, and grace. He did lead me into a job where I was I was at a um, major Christian organization. I won't name it, but it was a big one, and um, and that's actually where I'm I met. John Eldridge and why I eventually ended up here. But those those years there, I almost had a had a complete breakdown. In some respects, I did have a complete breakdown because a lot of those years were just that constant spin to try to prove myself to the people around me. And I had a lot of undealt with hurt and wounds in my life that I didn't understand at the time and didn't understand that was driving a lot of that, that search for validation. And so in those years, um, I just worked so hard to please people. And I ended up going from, you know, started that job at, uh, what would that have been? Almost 23. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 27, I think, I ended up rising and rising and rising to the point that I ended up being asked to be the interim vice president of the college program that I was working for at Whoa. the time. 
And I had no business doing that. Like a 27-year-old as a VP of all yeah, that? Yeah. That's crazy. Completely unqualified and had no business in that. But because I had worked so hard to please people and to just work really hard to not be a problem, like I was saying earlier, that's what ended up happening. And that's where my breakdown happened. Mm. And, you know, for me, it expressed itself in anxiety and anxiety almost took me out and I would go to work each day and I'd just be working so hard not to let anybody see what was really going on inside and how terrified I was and how anxious I was. And by the time I got home, I had nothing left. And, uh, you know, those were the days of blockbusters where you'd go rent a movie and the VHS uh, <laughs> pretty much. I think, I think we might've graduated to DVDs by then. Um, but Mel and I would, you know, go in the evening to, to grab a movie from Blockbuster. I couldn't even go inside and talk to the person behind the counter. I'd be like, Melly, you have to go rent the movie because I'm, I'm going to have a panic attack in front of a Blockbuster clerk. And, wow. and that was where it was like, I need help. I need help. And began a journey of digging into where is this coming from? Mm. But a lot of the answer was found in coming to this, right? This idea that, no, actually you're full, you're fully loved. You're okay. And you don't have to keep proving yourself. Wow. So good. So when you look back on your twenties, John, what of those threads do you feel like you want to grab onto and speak to? Like, what was that season about? What do you wish you would, had written on your mirror for that decade? Where do you go with all that? I was going through life thinking that the secret to finding happiness was finding the right role. Mm-hmm. Like if I could just get the right job at the right place with the right people, then I would be satisfied. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time like really dissatisfied, always looking for the next thing, the next business I could start. And it was in my early 30s that someone said to me that instead of focusing on what I was doing, I needed to switch the focus to becoming the kind of person I was supposed to be. And when I made that transition, the shift that happened was that in my mind, I stopped attaching my happiness and my contentment to the idea of if I can find the right role, the right job, the right place to be working, then I will be satisfied. Mm. And what I realized was that actually the sense of satisfaction that I was looking for had much more to do with becoming the type of person I was supposed to be. And that all of a sudden, as I shifted my focus to my wife and my kids and my friends, it didn't matter what I was doing every day. All right, Barry, come pop a squat. So somehow you end up marrying a Canadian. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I meet, this is 1992, I meet a young lady who's uh, pretty fascinating, and I actually have a weird God encounter that just scared me because I'm not used to God speaking to me like this. And he actually spoke something to me about Michelle before I met Michelle. Hmm. 
which is a weird deal. You know, I mean, like, and I wasn't anticipating it and it, it wigged me out. You haven't seen her. I have, I have you no know idea nothing what she about looks her. Like. You just hear yeah. a name. Yeah. Don't That's know anything so crazy. about her. Did meet with them, sat down and had dinner. And I just sat there terrified the <laughs> whole time. And a month or so later, I was driving to work one morning and I'm just talking to the Lord like, like, why am I hearing you like this? Am I crazy? And I look up, I'm sit, I'm at a red light and I look across the intersection and Michelle is there in her car. And I'm like, what? I, you know, that was totally weird. And then I saw her almost every morning, I think for a week at the same intersection. And I kind of felt like he was saying, well, you know, you could act on what I've spoken to you. And so finally I called her and I'm like, hey, Michelle, this is Barry Patterson, you know, and, and she's like, um, who, and I'm like, have we met at that dinner? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, hey, some folks are coming over to play cards and stuff. Just wanted to invite you. And she, I think she did one of those things where she's like, oh, let me ask my mom. Mom, say I can't go, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But we ended up playing some music together uh, later that year. Hmm. And that kind of started our relationship. I can feel the questions from the uh, man going, I feel like God said some weird things to me. What do you do now when God tells you weird things <laughs> that you're older? Um, go back to sleep. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. It does sound kind of weird. And we can sometimes project our desires onto God. Like, God, give me what I want. Mm -hmm. And that's not a great method. But knowing the nature of our father, I think we take that into account. And if he says something to us that seems odd or seems strange or uncomfortable, we've got to trust that he has our best in mind, that he loves us, that he wants us to reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus as he shows himself to us. And so I think walk slowly because we do have, I have to make room for my humanity. You know, my desire for a wife was not a bad desire. That was a good, a good thing, a good desire. But if I let that be a God, or if I let that desire supplant my relationship with my father, then that's going to potentially lead to some difficult things. Mm. So if I hear the father say something to me that seems strange or that I don't understand, it's not my job to necessarily understand it all, but I just want to walk with him. And if he wants to say something to me, then I want to hear what he wants to say. And I want him to show me, like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to speak to my heart? What do you want to accomplish in me? There seems to be some anecdotal stories of the Christian dating world where young men will announce to young yeah. women, like, God told me yeah. we are going to date. And that isn't the story that I'm hearing from you. The story I'm hearing from you is like, where there's then this moment of permission of you get to choose still. This isn't like right. a 
man, we're going to get into how everybody feels about free will and predestination and all that kind of stuff. But there's a moment of action. Yeah. And I think that that is particularly informative about that story, right? That it's like, hey, do you want to chase after this thing? Awkwardly, imperfectly holding this this piece. Yeah. Because you didn't just meet her and then go, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Barry. God told me last night that we are going to get married. Right. So... Yeah, I would not recommend that. No? Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Might have been a different outcome to the story. <laughs> I mean, the, the beautiful thing about our Father, our Jesus, is that He speaks to us, He speaks to me with dignity. He treats me with dignity. He invites me into a process to walk with Him. And uh, as easy as it would be maybe to be little Christian robots and have... God spell out everything that we think and wear and do and whatever. Uh, I really think he invites us into a relationship and a walk. Mm. And uh, that was an invitation to pursue a young woman. And the rest of the story, you know, is like there was a lot of heartache. God was doing a lot of stuff in my messed up heart to prepare me. And then, you know, nothing exposes us like that desire for intimacy. Mm-hmm. It was an invitation into one of the most exposing and hardest processes and relationships that I've ever had the joy of being in. So Justin, the question for the minute the outpost has been when you look back at your 20s, what do you wish you had known? Or what did you know at the end that would have made a world of difference right in the middle? I wish I would have slowed down and not tried to uh, optimize, not tried to, you know, just do this because there's something else that I could move on to. I wish I had slowed down and spent more time trying to love people and less time trying to just be right. Jeez. (laughs) Dang. Oof. Oof. (laughs) Um, Can I also add that I'm still trying to figure that out? (laughs) Right? I wish that I had just tried to love people instead of trying to be right. I wish that I had not seen things as a task to get through and get on to the next piece and I'd slowed down. Are there particular chapters that really felt like when you were thinking back, you go, oh man, when I was in this season, I was moving way too fast or this relationship doesn't exist anymore because I, what, what comes to mind? Why, why those two answers for us? You know, I would specifically, I can even point to my relationship with Christine, my wife, and know that I've been on a pretty good path for a number of years now, but, you know, I could point to like things that I did 10 years ago that has affected our relationship and is, has long lasting. Like I'm still trying to get to the point where, you know, like the way that Christine reacts to me right now I see as she's reacting to how I feel I was 10 years ago. Mm. And even though I feel like I've been better and have been doing things that better take her heart into consideration, it's how she's learned me and still is 
learning to relearn me mm-hmm. and how I, I want to be a better husband, a better father to my kids. And that, you know, transitions into flows down into every relationship that I've had over a long period of time. Yeah. Wow. This may zoom out of the 20s into the 30s a little bit, but I'm curious about that answer. I wish I had spent more time trying to love people. What are the things, what are the parts of the story that have made you a more loving person? Mm. I'll say that I don't feel like I'm still that man, that person that I want to be because it goes against like my ingrained personality and how I think and very detail oriented. And so, you know, I want to, you know, have that checklist, have the, you know, whatever, and just go through, but that's not how other people are wired. That's not how my wife is wired. It's not how my kids are wired. So I'll say that I, I don't feel like I'm that kind of person that I want to be yet. But, you know, even driving uh, with my kids to school yesterday, my oldest daughter said something and I felt that instant urge to correct. And I noticed that I went to this place of, I don't need to correct. I just need to understand where she's coming from and to love, love her and love that answer. So... I don't feel like I'm there yet, but I see these little glimpses where I feel like I am trending in the right direction, but I need to keep going. Yeah, to me, it just speaks of, we talk about like the one degree shifts yeah. and like in the moment, it might not feel like a lot, but 10 years later, it ends up being pretty substantial. That feels like what I'm hearing in the relationships and the ways that you've learned, I like make that one degree shift sooner maybe a way of boiling it down? Yeah, I've learned over the years that I can't flip a switch. I can't, you know, today I'm this person, but I want to be this person or more like this person. Mm -hmm. And I can't flip a switch and do that. And so that one degree shift is really important. And I'm to a point now where I can start to see the fruits of that. Mm -hmm. Anything worth doing right and doing well is, is worth starting now and takes a long time mm. and is not, like I said, one of those things where you can flip a switch and just say, all right, I'm, I'm doing this now. Those things are easy and you can flip a switch and do that. But when it comes to being, for me, a more loving husband, a more loving father and friend, if I didn't start yesterday, I can start today and be slightly more loving and more understanding and tomorrow better and better and better. And I don't feel like it's worth it's worth doing, but I don't feel like you can just flip that switch and all of a sudden I'm that person. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that 20 years from now, 40 years from now, I'm still working on that. You know, I, I hope. I don't know. I don't know what that's like, but it's been hard for me, but I'm starting to see the fruits of it now. That's so good. I wish there was like, the doorway you could walk through and like literally on the other side of that two by four frame, you would be the person that you wanted to be when you were leaving the house that morning. But your answer feels much more true, much more honest. So thanks, Justin. You're welcome. Hey dad. Love the ponytail. 
Technically, it's bun, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is a sword. It's not a knife. This is not. (laughs) (laughs) It looks good. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. As you look back on your 20s, what's something that you wish you had written on your mirror to be a piece of orientation? Or... What's something that only decades later did you realize those years were really about for you? What I wish I would have had in my bathroom mirror was a couple sentences. You're going to be okay. And honestly, this really isn't up to you. Because I was convinced it was completely up to me. I had no assurance that I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But I think looking back now, if I could have spent my 20s better than I did, and I spent them well. I mean, they weren't utterly reckless. Got married in my 20s, started a family in my 20s, you know, built a theater company that we loved. Saw the East Coast, decided it wasn't for you. Yeah, yeah. Went to Washington, hated it, came back in my 30s, came back. I wish that someone would have helped me deal with my brokenness sooner and that it didn't have to wait for like anger and rage and things to start Mm. blowing up. Just somebody put their arm around my shoulder and say, hey, pal, you grew up in an alcoholic home. That was pretty traumatic. Are you aware of how traumatic that was? And and then walk me into some soul care. Mm -hmm. The whole soul care movement was just getting started. You know, Larry Crabb was just beginning to do conferences. People were just beginning to go, hey, you have a soul and you really ought to take care of it. But I didn't have that. And you wish you had had it sooner. Oh, man. Right? Don't you guys wish I had had it sooner? I wish everyone I know has sooner. <laughs> that's a great answer. My friend, <laughs> my friend recently quipped that everyone who knows me ends up in counseling quickly, but... You know, Dad, I think that many of our listeners know these beats already, know these moments to the story, but I think it would be helpful to know kind of the range of the 20s too. Like, what were some of the things that happened in that decade? What were some of the ways that you spent your time? Because it's everything from a theater company to a DC job to marriage to first kids coming, like, What else happened in that decade? (laughs) Okay. So, bought a 1968 Volkswagen Squareback. And me and my pal, Kevin Harness, and my dog, Joshua, when I was 20, did a road trip from L.A. to Glacier National Park in Montana. Wow. It was awesome. Totally recommend it. We blew out the steering dampener. Uh, somewhere on those dirt roads in Montana. So for the rest of the trip, you got the high-speed wobble thing going. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's nice and terrifying. And then running out of money, living on graham crackers and peanut butter. You know, all of that, the joy of that. <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. Stace and I dated for three years till we got married. I think that was hard on her. Now, we married young. You know, I was 23. 
she was 24, but I think those, I think making her wait three years in, in what was obviously a pretty serious relationship, this is where we're headed. And then started that theater company, community theater company in LA, but LA is like actor rich, right? So we attracted people with MFAs, you know, in theater, we attracted like really, really talented people. So it was a gas. It was a gas. We had a phenomenal community of people around us. And our t- we had friends and, and, you know, we'd camp together and barbecue together and pray together. And that was just real organic. I wish we would have hung on to more of those relationships. So then it's get married. I got kicked out of high school with a 4.0, but it was because I never went. And so I had to go back to community college and make up those credits so that I could go to college. So I graduated from college when I was 28 mm. with my BA. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, technically, you graduated from high school when you were like 25. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But all that was beautiful. I mean, all that, you know, Morgan's phrase about on time, that was okay. That was okay. And I wish someone had explained to me the religious spirit sooner in my Christian life. You know, I didn't, I had never been to church prior to my encounter with Jesus when I was 19. I mean, I think I went to a funeral once with mm-hmm. my parents. Like I just had, there was no, like there was no family Bible reading, there, nothing, you know. So I get into the church, I'm just charged for Jesus. This is just about God, right? That's all we're doing here. And then pretty quickly you discover, oh, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on here. And and I didn't have a category for it at the time. I actually got very wounded by the church and kind of some relational betrayal stuff. And I didn't have an interpretive grid for that of like, oh, there's, there's an enemy and he's disguised himself in religious language and stuff. But mm-hmm. he, that's not the gospel. That's mm-hmm. not Jesus. That's not the heart of God. So that happened in the mm-hmm. 20s as well. It feels like the interpretive grid is like the broader way of categorizing all the things that you wish. Like it was mm. for some healing and therefore some categories for the trauma or the way that you respond to people or to yourself for feeling like it's okay where you're at for the religious spirit. Like I felt like there wasn't a, a grid at all. Um, and I'm imagining like Luke Skywalker in the trench and there's that like, you know, old... Was it the 80s? Like that little red on red grid that, that's scrolling by. Yes. But I feel like like that's just not there at all. And you're like, well, I'm not, I'm for sure not Luke Skywalker. And uh Alec Guinness is not whispering in my ear. <laughs> I just hope I don't run into something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've told this story before, but we're on that road trip in the 68 square back. I've just met Christ. I'm a, I'm a brand new follower of Jesus. And we're outside Jackson, Wyoming, way down that dirt road that goes into the Grovant wilderness. And we're out of gas. I looked down at my gas gauge, we're out of gas. And I had had it, my to-do list was get gas in Jackson. Like before you leave town, get groceries, get gas. Didn't do it, ran out of gas. I'm just like, oh no, man, I am, we are so screwed. Like I am, an, and then all that, I'm an idiot. I'm like, wait a second, I have God. Like, what do, I, what do I do? And I literally hear the voice of God in my heart. He says, I'll bring you gas. 
I'm like, far out. So we just went fishing. <laughs> we just pulled over and went, because that was our goal. That's why we were back down that, that forest road. And then about two hours later, we come up and here's a classic VW van full of hippies. And they're like, hey, man, you know, is that your campsite? Because, like, we can't find a place. I'm like, actually, no, we're not staying the night here. We're moving on. They're like, oh, far out. Like, um, can we, ha- you know, can we have your site? I said, actually, I can't go anywhere yet. I'm out of gas. They're like, oh, we're headed to town. <laughs> I said, can I get a ride with you? And they're like, no, we'll bring you gas. <laughs> and so we're Smile. like, far out. So we went back down and went fishing till they came and brought us gas. And I thought that was normal. Mm. until I got into what was a little bit more of like a suffocating, you know, sort of religious experience. And I wish somebody would have said, no, that is normal. Like God does speak. And yeah, that's it. Keep, keep chasing that. But I actually didn't chase hearing God much more for a, I, I like about 10 years mm. after that. Because it just, it wasn't part of the culture. It wasn't taught from the pulpit you know, the conversational relationship is available. But I mean, there it was, right? It was part of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. 